Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It's great to be with you another Thursday evening, an evening that will allow us to engage the gospel we will hear on Sunday, right? Uh, Thursdays is no longer devoted to Theology of the Body, but now Scripture for Sunday. Theology of the Body has been bumped up to Wednesday. We are still in this first week of our new programming, so now Thursdays is about having the opportunity to reflect into the gospel we will hear on Sunday. And uh, for us this evening, this is John uh, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. It is Divine Mercy Sunday, right? So I'm not going to necessarily get into any extensive treatment on mercy per se tonight. Um, If you're looking for that, I I want to recommend my uh, program dated March 13th. If you were to go to joeholcraft.org and go to my uh, podcast archive there, go to March 13th. I really get into the biblical and catechetical vision. Uh, Quite honestly, during Lent, we hit mercy pretty hard pretty often, so I just don't want to rehash all of that this evening. Certainly, we will talk about God's mercy. How can you not on Divine Mercy Sunday? It just won't be an extensive treatment of it per se. I do want to be sure this evening to uh, look at that gospel I just mentioned from chapter 20, uh, verses 19 to 31, uh, along with uh, more of a focus into uh, what St. Thomas teaches us. I I think St. Thomas gets a bad rap. I've talked about this before, but we're going to get into this in a little more detail this evening. Uh, I've been reflecting and reading with uh, One Father, Cantola Mesa, uh, as well as, of course, John Paul II and Benedict XVI on Divine Mercy Sunday, but also uh, with St. Thomas. So I will lean into those figures tonight, uh, Father Cantola Mesa, John Paul II, uh, Benedict XVI, uh, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. As far as um, my programming goes, and who will be joining me, from here on out, I, I think On a pretty consistent basis, as far as our reflections for Sunday go, this Thursday programming goes, I'm going to have Debbie Rosales with me. So I very much look forward to having her with me on a more consistent basis. I'm always looking for the dialogue. And you know, when you're on radio, (laughs) it's always important to to have some dialogue. I know um, I fly solo from time to time, and certainly that does afford me to get into certain things that maybe I wouldn't normally be able to get into but uh, dialogues are very important. I believe that they are uh, much more interesting <laughs> than uh, monologues. At least the monologues need to be broken up from time to time. Okay, so with that, let us get into the Gospel of John. And then again, I'm going to reflect with this. And then as it relates to Divine Mercy Sunday, I, what I want to do there is speak to more of the, the history of it, because I haven't talked about that a whole lot. So at the very least, I'm just going to do a thumbnail sketch of that this evening. All right. So John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31 reads as follows. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut. But Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. So, what can we say of this great episode, this great biblical narrative this great encounter. First of all, to that opening verse, on the evening of that day. Well, what is that day? But the evening of Easter Sunday, uh, right? Very important to put this within the context of our liturgical season always. This language of his hands and his side, what is going on here? Well, the point is that Jesus is raised, not simply with a body, but with the same body that was crucified and died only days earlier. He carries these marks of his earthly sacrifice with him even when he ascends into heaven. You know, I want to go back briefly to the transfiguration here. What did we discover in that great mystical encounter that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus on top of that mountain? We know that great narrative where Elijah and Moses meet our Lord there on top of the mountain, he was illuminated with this dazzling light. What is going on in that encounter, and why do I talk about it now? Well, let's consider something. Indeed, this is one of the great mystical encounters, if not the great mystical encounter we have in all of the Gospels. And why do we reflect in this? Because Mystical theology, in so many ways, is about going beyond the form we have and allowing it to be illuminated in the light of Christ. Mystical theology is about just not looking at something, but looking into something, seeing and grasping its depth dimension, if you will. It's interesting, if you were to go to the Greek for transfiguration, it literally translates as he went beyond the form that he had. So without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more. 
And so in our own encounters with Jesus Christ, what we are made to see is when we are drawn to light and we enter into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this personal relationship with the light of the world, we not only experience this love, but we discover as we share in his very life a new depth dimension to who we are called to be. What is that great passage that comes to us from 2 Peter 1, 4? We are shares and participators in the divine life of God. So very important. Why? Because again, our Lord carries the marks of his earthly sacrifice with him even when he ascends into heaven. We experience a new depth dimension to who we are called to be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we carry our cross, when we carry those marks of our earthly sacrifice. So there's a direct relationship between the transfiguration, and I believe this narrative here, very important. Okay, so he says what? Peace be with you. Peace be with you, a traditional Hebrew greeting. We see this constantly in Paul's epistles. Shalom. Peace be with you. The Greek is this covenant harmony. By saying peace be with you, Christ is saying be in covenant relationship with God where where you will find order and you will be restored in the very life of God. Peace be with you. Hmm. He breathed on them. Now, this anticipates the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost, huh? Of course, which will take place 50 days later, Penta 50, right? Here we see that the risen humanity of Jesus has become, in so many ways, a sacrament of the divine Spirit. John here uses an expression that reoccurs in significant contexts in the Greek Old Testament. He breathed on them. Does that phrase sound familiar? It should. It appears where? Genesis 2-7, where the Lord breathes life into Adam. How about 1 Kings 17-21, where the Greek version is very specific that Elijah resuscitated a boy with his, what, breath, huh? How about Ezekiel 37, 9, where God raises an army of corpses to new life by the what? The breath of the Spirit. He breathed life. So powerful. And of course, we have some very important verses here. I'm often asked the question about the sacrament of confession. I think John chapter 20, verse 23 is very important for us. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, this is on the hills of him conferring his very power and life upon them and into them. He's entrusting to them the sacramental life. And certainly here, the sacrament of confession. If you forgive the sins... So, how are we to understand this? Well, our Lord's ministry of mercy and reconciliation 
will continue through the apostles, right? I mean, the power to forgive and retain sins in the name of Jesus is elsewhere described as the authority to bind and loose. If you were to go to Matthew 16, 19, Matthew 18, 18, you see this same quality, the same dynamism going on. If you were to go into history, you see that it was the Council of Trent in the 16th century that connects this very episode with the Institute of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, by which Christ distributes divine forgiveness to the world through the successors of the apostles, and again, the apostles, the bishops, and their assistants in the presbyterate, the priests. So this is what's going on here, and certainly this has been a point of development through the years. Okay, eight days later, eight days later, we read in verse 26. Well, this is the second Sunday of, of the Easter octave. This is Divine Mercy Sunday. I mean, again, these words are situated in a very specific liturgical context. And I think my favorite verse in this whole passage is, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. The climactic confession of faith in John's gospel. My Lord and my God. We're going to talk more about this here in a bit as it relates to Thomas. And how about verses 30 to 31? You know, a statement in many ways of purpose by the evangelist. He has written the fourth gospel both as history and as what? Witness in the hope that a factual portrayal of Christ's life will not just inform readers, but challenge them to accept him and his claims with true faith. And how important is it that he says not everything he has done is written here? He says the same thing at the end of Chapter 21, verse 25. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And certainly what this speaks to is sacred tradition, right? Remember what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Stay steadfast to the oral traditions which I have handed on to you. Remember, my friends, for a period of at least 20 years, there was no written text, per se, of the New Testament, but there was the sacramental life, this sacramental salvific saving hierarchy, this teaching church. Essentially, there was this church which responded to what Christ told them to do. That is, do this in remembrance of me, the Eucharist, and teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there was a sacramental church and there was this teaching church. And this church we know is the Christian Catholic Church. For 20 years, no written word. And remember, historically speaking, we didn't have, we don't have the New Testament until the end of the fourth century, per se, in its official canon. You have heard me talk about this a great deal in the past. The New Testament was about what he said it was. Mark 14, 24, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. This is the blood of the New Testament. The New Testament was the blood of Jesus Christ that we are all called to share in, in the Eucharist. Okay, now, what can we say of Thomas? Let us go back to some of these verses. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. With the emphasis on the incident of Thomas here and his initial incredulity, the gospel addresses, we could say, I'm reflecting here with Father Cantal Mesa. Father Cantal Mesa is that pontifical preacher. He is the one who leads retreats for the Curia there in Rome, who uh, preaches to the Pope. Isn't that a daunting role, huh? He says that the gospel addresses the man of the technological age who believes only what he can verify. Among the apostles, we can call Thomas our contemporary. I believe this just to be a salient point for us, especially as we are made to reflect and make practical this gospel. St. Gregory the Great, in speaking to this doubting, says to us that Thomas was more useful to us than all the other apostles who believed the right way. Acting in this way, so to speak, he obliged Jesus to give us a tangible proof of the truth of his resurrection. What does he mean by this? Faith in the resurrection benefited by his doubts. Now, this is true, at least in part, when applied to the numerous Thomases of today who are the non-believers. The criticism of non-believers and dialogue with them, when carried out in respect and reciprocal loyalty, should be very useful to us. Because above all, they should make us what? But humble. They oblige us to take note that faith is not a privilege or an advantage for anyone. We cannot impose it or demonstrate it. We cannot coerce or browbeat, but only propose and show it with our life. What do we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? My dear friends, in the end, faith is a gift, not a merit. It is all gifts. It can only be lived in gratitude and humility. It is a favor, right? Faith is a favor. It is a gift. We are all God's favorites. You know, we all have our favorites. We have our, our favorite meal, our, our favorite team we root for. We even have our favorite friends. For God, <laughs> we are all his favorites. So important. Now, the relationship with non-believers also helps us to purify our faith of, we could say, clumsy representations. You know, very often, what non-believers reject is not the true God, the living God of the Bible, but his double, a distorted image of God that believers themselves, to some extent, have actually contributed to create. Rejecting this God, non-believers oblige us to go back to the truth of the living and true God who is beyond all of our representations and explanations. We are not to fossilize him or trivialize him, but to simplify him. As we engage the non-believer, we do so to the degree 
that we ourselves are reminded that, again, faith is a gift. And as we enter into the act of faith, trust, what we are doing is handing on Jesus as a friend. But there is also something else here, a wish to be expressed, that St. Thomas might find today many imitators, not only in the first part of his story, when he states he does not believe, but also at the end, in that magnificent act of faith that leads him to exclaim, what, my Lord and my God. What do we intend to mean here? Thomas is also one to imitate for another reason. He does not close the door. He does not remain in his position, considering the problem resolved once and for all. In fact, we find him eight days later with the other apostles in this cynical. If he had not wished to believe or to change his opinion, he would not have been there, my friends. He wants to see. He wants to touch. He is searching. He is inquiring. He is questing. Huh? We could say here that Thomas is a theologian in its most classical sense. Remember what theology means. Faith seeking understanding. Fides corins and delectum. He is searching, seeking understanding. And at the end, after Thomas has, has seen and touched with his hand, he exclaims to Jesus, not as someone defeated, but as someone victorious, my Lord and my God. No other apostle had yet gone out to proclaim Christ's divinity with so much clarity, claritas, precision. Now, Thomas did not just touch him. He encountered the greatness of his mercy and its fruit. My Lord and my God. God's mercy never gives up on us. I mean, consider, my friends, how might we react when we tell someone the truth and they do not believe us? At the very least, they might be frustrated, if not angry. And yet, here's an apostle who spent day and night with him, watched his miracles, ate with him, and yet he still did not believe. Yet Christ continues to astound us with his persevering love for us. He never stops knocking on the door of our heart. So it is, my friends, that every first Sunday after Easter, we seek to better understand God's divine mercy on Divine Mercy Sunday. Now again, I'm not going to get into mercy. Go to that podcast I noted off the top, March 13th. What is the, this feast day's origins? You know, the devotion of divine mercy stems from the revelations, as many of us may be aware, made to the Polish nun St. Faustina Kowalska, who lived from 1905 to 1938. And over a number of years and at several different convents, including the one in Krakow where she was buried, again, our Lord appeared to her. Now, there are several elements involved in this devotion to the divine mercy. One, of course, is the image of the merciful Jesus based on a vision back in February of 1931. In it, our Lord is pictured in the act of blessing with two rays, one red and the other 
pallid, right? Representing blood and water, shining from his heart. The words, Jesus, I trust in you, are placed at his feet. If you were to travel the world today, you see many images of this. We have a beautiful image of that at St. John the Baptist Church here in Chico. Other elements are certainly the hour of mercy, three o'clock in the afternoon, in which the passion is meditated upon and, and certain prayers are recommended by the revelation itself. As many of us know, these prayers are often tied to what? But the chaplet of divine mercy, where we pray for the sake of the sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. A beautiful prayer. This was requested again by Jesus himself to St. Faustina. I think what is important for us as well is to consider the relationship between Divine Mercy Sunday and John Paul II. The spirituality of John Paul II was deeply influenced by the devotion to the Divine Mercy, and he dedicated his second encyclical, his second major document, to mercy, titled Rich in Mercy. As Archbishop of Krakow, he promoted the beatification of Sister Faustina, and it was on the occasion of her canonization in April of 2000 that he announced henceforth the second Sunday of Easter would be the Feast of Divine Mercy. It was very close to his heart, my friends. Now, this announcement was followed by a juridical act coming from the Congregation of Worship. I actually pulled this up. I want to read it. It says the following. And so with provident pastoral sensitivity, and in order to impress deeply on the souls of the faithful, these precepts and teachings of the Christian faith, the Supreme Pontiff John Paul II, again, this is dated 2000, moved by the consideration of the Father of Mercy, has willed that the second Sunday of Easter be dedicated to recalling with special devotion these gifts of grace and gave this Sunday the name Divine Mercy Sunday. So yes, we are made to reflect upon the richness and the greatness of his love that flows from the cross. The love that we know as agape, divine sacrificial love. The love that we know as mercy. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.